this morning we are continuing in our series on the names of Jesus, uh, looking at various ways that Scripture speaks about who Jesus is via the names that he's given, names that he self-designated and names also that others gave to him. And since we've already had such a wonderfully eventful morning, we're going to dive right in today, uh, looking at Matthew chapter 27. So you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27. Um, Since we are also in the season of Lent right now, we are going to be looking at names that are maybe a little bit more focused in on, um, or brings maybe names that bring us a little closer to the cross of Jesus, just so you know. So going forward, we'll be looking a little bit closer at names specifically related to his crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 32. And the words will also uh, be up on the screen as well. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is the word of the Lord. There is so much in this text that we could touch on this morning, but we're, we're just going to focus in on the name that is presented to Jesus here, one of the many names actually that's presented, but one that's presented, Son of God, a name that Jesus definitely used for himself, but was also a name that was given to him. And as we've seen in the text for today, it wasn't always given to him in the most glorifying of ways. Now, in tradition, in history, in culture, particularly ancient Near Eastern culture, to be a son of a god or son of God was actually a common identifier for a king. Um, Any king in Israel's history, any king in the ancient Near East, in in Babylon, Persia, Greco-Roman, Roman period itself... To be the son of a god was another way of, of calling yourself as the king. Or to, if you were the king, you would call yourself or you would be identified perhaps even as a god yourself, as Pharaoh did. But oftentimes, to be a son of the god implied that you were a king and vice versa. The two were synonymous with one another. But what we see happening throughout the Gospels, and specifically in this text, is that Jesus' sonship to God implies something so much more than just a title or a status or power. Now, the text starts off by telling us a number of details that hopefully we can actually touch on in a later message, but we'll just mention them briefly today. A man named Simon is asked to carry Jesus' cross. Then verse 33, they take Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. 
They offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, which was a common practice for crucifixion victims. It was actually a kind of act of mercy. Sometimes frankincense was used. It was a way of dulling the senses so that the, the victim wouldn't experience as much pain. So it was an act of mercy. But Jesus, of course, doesn't take it. The guards divide up his clothes, and then a sign is put above him, actually with another name that we'll touch on in a few weeks, on Palm Sunday, King of the Jews. Then in verse 38, two rebels are crucified alongside of Jesus, and now begins the theater of mockery. People who are passing by slander him. The chief priests and teachers of the law laugh at him. Even the crucified rebels next to him hurl insults at him. Everyone is mocking Jesus. As one scholar put it, everyone in this text gets an opportunity to mock him. Why? Simply this. Because of who he claimed to be. Who did he claim to be? Well, look at these insults. Verse 40. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. That sounds a bit familiar. Where might we have heard that before? Well, back in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, after Jesus' baptism, interestingly enough, directly after his baptism, after he's heard these wonderful words spoken from the Father, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How does the devil tempt him? He tempts him three times, right? We know the story. And twice in those temptations, he says these words, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself. If you are the Son of God, Jesus, throw yourself down from the temple and the angels will catch you. Even in the third temptation, Satan entices Jesus to think less of his own authority as God's Son and to be tempted towards earthly power instead, as if the devil can give him more than God can if you are the Son of God. Because if you're not, look at what I can do for you. It's almost as if the greatest temptation to Jesus, which the devil was aware of, is the temptation to minimize who he is. To think less of himself, to disbelieve in himself almost. To question or doubt who he is and distrust those words that the Father has spoken over him. Jesus heard those words, you are my son, and then spent the entire rest of his career being tempted to believe otherwise, tempted by the devil and by everyone else to prove that he is actually who he says he is. Come down from the cross, say the people passing by, if you really are the son of God. If you are the son of God, do something. Come down from the cross. Show off who you are. Show us. Prove it. Throw yourself down, Jesus. Wow the people into believing in you. It was the constant demand that Jesus had been tempted to do from the very beginning. Prove that you are who you say you are. And I think we all know that there is no God in history, throughout history, who has ever received more demeaning disbelief and mockery and disdain 
than Jesus. The Pharisees all along were trying to get something out of him. Earlier in Matthew 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees want a sign from heaven so that they would believe. But Jesus refused because Jesus knew that that's not how people come to truly believe in him and to understand him. Signs don't change people. Showing off demonstrations of power in and of itself does not change people. Jesus knew this. Author and speaker Tony Campolo once shared this story in one of his books called Which Jesus? He says this, I have found that even when skeptics have miracles thrown in their faces, they often have a great capacity to discount them by attributing the miraculous to some natural cause. When I was in graduate school, he says, my major professor, Paul Van Buren, was not willing to accept that anything that defied the laws of empirical science could ever happen. One day he said to me, Tony, if you're such a believer in miracles, why don't you go out to the commons and build an altar of wood like Elijah did in the Hebrew Bible? Then call out to all the agnostics and atheists of the universe, university to watch you do what Elijah is supposed to have done. Douse the wood with water and prove to the skeptics that there is a God by praying down fire from heaven to consume the altar. I didn't have a good answer for him, says Tony, but I did have a question. Dr. Van Buren, I asked, suppose I did exactly as you suggested and fire did come down from heaven and consume the water-soaked altar. Would you then believe in God? He thought for a while and then answered wryly, I'd probably say that there must be another explanation. Miracles, said Tony, don't always convince non-believers to change their ways of thinking and acting. Jesus, too, knew that some sort of miraculous sign and throwing himself off of the cross to save himself wouldn't actually do anything for the kingdom of God that God himself was trying to build. Because a much greater purpose, a much greater saving, and really a much more miraculous saving was actually at work. Jesus knew, even on the cross, that what the crowds were wanting him to do was the exact opposite of what the Son of God needed to do. Which only proves further that it's so easy for us to be tempted into misunderstanding what Jesus was all about and is all about. He had no interest in catering to the demands of other people's interests. He wasn't and still isn't interested in giving people dramatic experiences or newsworthy stories that simply show off his power. Why? Because Jesus knows that those things aren't ultimately what make people's souls receptive to believing that he is, in fact, who he says he is. God's son. Something deeper needs to happen within. A sort of holy light needs to turn on. There's a theater show called The Miracle Worker. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's the story of, of Helen Keller. She was uh, a young woman, well, when she was born, um, she, was, she was born fine, but then she ended up getting sick at a very young age, about six or seven weeks old, um, and was rendered both blind and deaf because of it. Now, the play tells the story um, in a particular season of life, how when Helen was young, maybe seven or eight years old, her family hired a teacher 
to try to tame some of her behavioral antics because, of, because she was blind and deaf, she was prone to some more dramatic behavior. They had tried doctors and specialists, all sorts, but to no avail. And so the la- their, their last result was a 20-year-old young woman who had once been blind herself, a woman named Annie. So the bulk of the play is spent watching this relationship unfold as Annie desperately tries every avenue possible to teach Helen that there's such a thing as language, right? Because, of course, Helen has never heard anything. She doesn't understand that things have names. And so Annie spends the entirety of the play signing into her hand. I, you know, I, I kind of remember sign language. Signing letters into her hand saying, this is how it's spelled. This thing has a name. Helen's never learned this. She has no idea that things have meaning that objects and people have names. So she tries, Annie tries through sign language, to get the light to turn on. Over and over, she signs letters into Helen's hand only to get a blank stare or a temper tantrum in return. Finally, in the last scene, and apologies for the spoiler alert if you've never seen it, but the family is outside on the front yard. Annie's at her wit's end. The the family is completely exasperated. Helen's just been acting out in all sorts of ways. She's behaving terribly. And it seems like everything has been for naught and Helen's just a lost cause. But Annie has taken Helen out to an old water pump on the front yard. This is set back in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s. An old water pump and gets her to pump water into the pitcher. And as she's doing it, Helen, of course, can't hear anything, but Annie helps her with the motion, takes her hand then, and spells it out into her hand. And she's been doing this through the whole place. So by this point, Annie's just doing it somewhat repetitively and dryly, but she's, water, you know, W-A-T-E-R, water, it has a name, she says. And then all of a sudden, the miracle happens. Helen drops the pitcher, stands totally frozen, Annie's not sure what's going on, but Helen then, for the first time in the play, utters words, or a two-syllable word that she suddenly remembers having heard before she got sick as an infant. She learned how to say, Wawa. Water, Wawa, she says. Wawa. She puts her hand on the water. She puts her hands into the water, feels it around, and then repeats the spelling into Annie's hand. Annie then grabs her hand, spells it again, and says, yes, yes, water, it has a name, water. And all of a sudden, it clicks for Helen, and she goes excitedly, and she starts banging on the grass, wanting to know what this is called. What is this? And so Annie runs over, and she spells it into her hand, and then she goes to the stone, and she, what's this, what's this? And her whole life has changed, because she gets it. She gets it. The signing means something. That people have names, that there's significance beyond what her entire life she's only been able to smell and to feel and to touch. Things actually have names. Helen finally understands that the signs that Annie has been putting into her hand have significance. But it took a holy light bulb turning off for her to realize that all of Annie's efforts had been pointing to something, that there was deeper meaning and significance to what she was doing, to what her teacher was doing for her. 
the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and the people passing by and the rebels that were crucified with Jesus do not grasp the signs that Jesus is showing them, the signage that he's giving regarding the kind of God that he is. It has not impacted them on a deeper level. What all of Jesus' actions are implying, all that he's trying to do to get across to them, that there's significance that they're not understanding. There's a deeper meaning that's happening here that they're not grasping. And how heartbreaking and discouraging that must have been for Jesus to feel like all of your efforts had failed and yet to trust that something beautiful was still being accomplished despite what you were seeing around you. That's what Annie would have been feeling with Helen. That, that she had to trust that something was being accomplished, something would break through. Jesus had to trust that the flashy kind of display that they wanted was not enough to make people's souls receptive to the belief that he was, in fact, the Son of God. These people who are mocking Jesus won't suddenly believe simply because he, come, simply because he comes down from the cross. They need to see Jesus for who he really is. Interestingly enough, and ironically, it's the people who are yelling at Jesus to save himself who are actually the ones in need of saving. If you are the son of God, they say, do something. Prove something. Don't just die on the cross in such a pitiful and pathetic way. Do something. Jesus is always doing something. We just need the eyes and the heart to see it. And that, friends, should be our greatest prayer for those who don't know the son of God like we do that they would have the hearts opened to see him, that the light would go on, not that they would clean up their lives and do better, not that they would get their butts back in the church building, that doesn't matter, that they would see Jesus and see Jesus, not just as a good person or a historical figure or a good moral teacher or someone to believe in but not really follow as the son of God, they would see him as the son of God. Because really, really, how many of us are not still tempted to ask the same question? If you really are the son of God, we sometimes say subconsciously, why is my life worse now than it was before I started to follow you? If you really are the son of God, we might ask, why don't you take away my mom or my dad's cancer? Heal my friend's child? Let there be a breakthrough in my employment? If you really are the son of God, we might ask, why aren't you saving my marriage? Healing my mental health? Stopping earthquakes and wildfires from tearing down people's homes? Solving the refugee crisis? Stopping Putin? Ceasing war in the Middle East? If you really are the son of God, Jesus, why aren't you doing something? Why don't we see you demonstrating your power more often if you really are the Son of God? We do this, don't we? But again, I'll reiterate, if it's power 
that we're looking for. Like the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders and the criminals next to Jesus, we, like all of them, have missed the point. Remember, Satan's greatest deception is making us think that we need a demonstration or a sign of authority and power. But Jesus shows us that as the true Son of God, he reveals the very heartbeat of God's character, not in how he demonstrates his power, but in how he relinquishes it. In self-sacrificial love. That's how Jesus shows us who he is. As William Booth once said, it is precisely because he would not come down that we believe in him. At any moment, Jesus could have been released. He could have asked for angels to remove the nails, for the pain to stop, for the wounds to be healed, for an end to his suffering. At any moment, he could have done that. The Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders say in verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In other words, if he really is the son of God, then surely God cares more about him than this. If he wants him, if God wants him, God... considering that Jesus was feeling utterly abandoned, as we read about just a few verses later in verse 46, those words might have stung a little bit. Why have I been forsaken? Has my father really left me alone? Has he in fact abandoned me? Does he actually want me anymore? There are people in this world, perhaps even in this building, that have asked the same questions. Yet Jesus held to the truth. As the writer of Hebrews put it, he was made perfect in his suffering because he knew, he knew that by being the sacrifice as God's son, he would be enabling all the rest of us to be sons and daughters with him. He knew that only the Son of God, nailed to a cross, could give us the same identity that the living God spoke over him. In other words, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then neither are any of us. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then neither are we. As C.S. Lewis once said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Anything beyond this, said Lewis, is patronizing nonsense, because Jesus simply did not leave any other option open to us. He did not intend to give us any other option. Friends, we have been baptized in the grace and in the new covenant blood 
of Jesus' sacrifice. And just as the Father spoke those wonderful words over Jesus, he now speaks those words over you. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased because with you stands my son. Anyone who has experienced this love knows that only the spirit of Jesus can crack open the hard-heartedness of our hearts. That much is clear. No miraculous display of power or reason will actually create that cavity of need within us. And what this means is that even in our simplest endeavors then to speak with others about this love that we've received and have come to understand, we first need to be praying and asking that the Spirit would actually crack open their heart to receive it. The soil needs to be fertile in personal interactions and in bigger things. This is why it was said that anytime Billy Graham took a crusade to a city, he would first send a prayer team weeks before to be praying over the city because the soil needed to be fertile. People's hearts needed to be cracked open to actually receive what was being offered. It's why Dave Kenny last week, who was here, he told me that anytime they go to do a media blitz in a city, they actually send teams a month in advance ahead to meet with church leaders, to pray with them, to pray over the city, so that when they actually send the message across via satellite, Lord willing and spirit willing, people's hearts have been cracked open to actually receive it. We often think that we need to be presenting ourselves and, and proving ourselves and making ourselves look flashy and relevant and interesting. But our faith and the living out of our faith begins with seeing Jesus as our self-sacrificial son of God and shifting our whole perspective away from questioning him to proclaiming him. To go from asking if you are the son of God to declaring like the centurion does later on in this chapter, surely he is the son of God. We don't need to see his power because we know it's at work. He is the son of God. Jesus' own ministry career was bookended by temptation to doubt this. To feel like something or something more needed to be said or done. So we shouldn't be surprised at the times when we feel tempted to doubt him. Or to feel like we need some sort of sign to continue trusting him. And certainly at times he does do this. Miracles are real. Signs are true and good. But they are not instances where Jesus says, look at my power. That's what the devil wanted. That's what the Pharisees wanted. That's what the elders and the criminals and the people passing by wanted. That's not what Jesus is about. Jesus says, look at my love. Look at my love. He showed us love. And he has given us all the signage that we need to prove that he is the embodiment of God's love on earth. The Son of God, 
in true love's form. Would you pray with me? Living God, we have been reminded so much this morning in watching Jody and Laura's baptisms, in opening up your word, in worshiping you and hearing words washed over us that we are your children. We are your children, your beloved sons and daughters. And we know, Jesus, that that is only the case because you, as God's true beloved begotten son, have paved the way for us. May these truths, Father, sink deeply into our spirits, crack open our hearts anew. We know, Father, that we need to be constantly renewed and reformed by your spirit. So we pray that we would be open and willing to receive all the love that you have for us so that we may truly be bearers of this love to the people around us. Inspire us now, Lord, to be witnesses for your son's name and for your son's glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.